Have you ever come up to a passage of the Bible and it, you read it and you just thought, nope, that's too tough for me? There's a few of those, but I think one of the ones that I've appreciated the most has always been Hebrews chapter 6. That's a challenging passage in Scripture, particularly um, if you're me. It's a challenging passage that we have to face. And I, when we're going through the Bible and, and on Sunday mornings as we're spending time worshiping God through the proclamation of God's Word, one of the things that I place a great amount of emphasis and importance on, and hopefully you've seen this over the past two or whatever so years, one of the things I hope that you have seen is we don't run away from scary passages. We, uh, we continue to move through the text, text by text, verse by verse, and continue to move in this sort of a pattern so that we can come to what the Bible actually has to say. You see, the difficulty with Bible teachers who would stick to a topic or jump around in these different sorts of areas as a primary way of teaching the Bible is, well, that also gives them the license to avoid all the parts of the Bible that are particularly challenging for them. And uh, as much as I would like to say that I am honest, I also know that I have the ability to deceive myself, and I know that if I only preached by topic, I would certainly avoid passages like Hebrews chapter 6. With all of that said, we're skipping Hebrews chapter 6 this week. <laughs> but not because I'm avoiding the topics. Not because I'm avoiding the subject. You see... Between Hebrews chapter 6, there's chapter 5 and chapter 7. Two weeks ago, as we returned to the book of Hebrews, one of the things that I tried to illustrate and demonstrate through our teaching was that the author of the book of Hebrews actually has a purpose for his originally intended audience, namely the Jews. The book's called the Hebrews because he was writing to Hebrews. And he's making an argument, perhaps more than other didactic forms of a biblical genre, in the book of Hebrews, we can truly say that he is being argumentative with a Hebrew audience to make the case and to prove that Jesus Christ is greater than the Old Testament sacrificial law, than the high priesthood, than the uh, Levitical system of um, the sons of Aaron being adopted into this, that Christ becomes not only king, not only Lord, not only creator, not only greater than angels, but he is the greater high priest. He's making a case. He's building up to something. And if I'm honest, being 2,000 years removed from the text makes it a bit difficult for me to see that he is doing that. The reason I'm skipping Hebrews chapter 6, we will return to it. The reason we're jumping ahead to Hebrews chapter 7 this week is because I want to be helpful to you. I want you to see that there's an argument being made here. I want you to understand it so that as we come to Hebrews chapter 6, we would not fall prey to a misinterpretation of what the text is saying, but that we would be able to understand it rightly, that we would be able to understand what it means to have tasted the heavenly gift shared with us in the Holy Spirit, all the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And in order to do that, we really have to understand this whole Melchizedek problem that we introduced two weeks ago. Now, I know all of you have better memories than I, 
So all of you remember exactly what we were talking about two weeks ago as we introduced this Melchizedek fellow. And I'm sure you've all practiced at least a hundred times this week saying his name, Melchizedek, so that you didn't um, say it wrong in discussions with your families and so forth as you discussed the sermons. Well, I want us to understand him a bit better. In fact, the author of Hebrews does the same thing. He begins introducing Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And then he picks up all over again in chapter 7, verse 1. That's our text for this morning. Let's pray that we might understand what is going on with this 2,000-year-old argument when people had different means of building a case against something than we do today, that we might understand what the author is saying and especially what the divine author is saying as we turn to his word. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Be with us in our study of Hebrews. Be with us as we turn to your word, seeking to understand your divine statutes and ordinances, and that we might be able to walk in them. Lord, I thank you for the greatness and the goodness of your promises. And Lord, I pray that you would give us strength. God, I pray that you guide us as we discuss your word, that you would direct our minds and our attention according to your will, and that you would bless us all this morning as a result of our faithful worship of you. In Jesus' precious name, we ask these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would ask that you turn to Hebrews chapter 7 that you can read along with me if you haven't done so already. The Bible says... For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. For see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, through these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. The first thing that I'd like to address is what is the argument actually being made? You see, for a Jewish person or a Hebrew in the first century, hearing all of this news of the Messiah or the Christ or Christos that came and was the promised fulfillment of all of the Old Testament laws, the issue for them would have been, how is this Christ, if he is 
um, supposed to be making a sacrifice or atonement for himself, how is it possible for him to do that if he is not a priest? Well, we know if you wanted to be a priest, according to the Jewish system, you needed to be a descendant from Levi. You needed to be a Levite, a descendant from Aaron. You needed to be a part of the priesthood. And this is something that came about by genealogy. Jesus Christ was not a descendant of Aaron. In fact, the Bible says, teaches clearly that Jesus was a descendant from the tribe of Judah because King David is in his holy genealogy. This gave Christ the right to come and to be king. And so for a Jewish audience, well, then it makes sense that, that he would be a Messiah and that the Messiah would come and that he would rule and that he would be a king. All of this is well and good, but how do I get over this stumbling block that perhaps not only is he king, but that the Messiah was going to look different than the way that I expected him to look? Well, this is a stumbling block for me, especially in a Jewish perspective. I had an idea of a military leader coming to rescue us and redeem us and bring us back to independence in Jerusalem so that we might live a life that would glorify God. How am I supposed to get over this stumbling block? Well, I can accept that he was, going, he was a king. But now you're telling me that this Jesus Christ also becomes a priest in offering a sacrifice on behalf of my sin that I might be restored to a right relationship with God. From the Jewish perspective, you've gone too far. He can be king or he can be priest. How can he be both? And even if he was going to be both, how could you say that he was a priest when he's not, according to God's own word, qualified. He's not a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron. He's not qualified to be a Levite. He's not qualified to make a propitiation, a sacrifice on behalf of my sins. Why bring up Melchizedek then? The author of Hebrews is making this argument to the Jews that would say such things. You've misunderstood so much. You thought that you were wise and, and understanding and that you had comprehension of these things. But I want you to see that before Abraham, before Moses, there was this fellow that we meet in Genesis chapter 14 by the name of Melchizedek. And he has a relationship with this Aaronic priesthood. Who is this Melchizedek? When we meet him, we find that after Abraham's son or nephew Lot was taken captive by the kings of Sodom in that area, that Abraham went into battle leading about 318 of his trained men against no less than nine different kings. And God blessed him and he was victorious in this situation. He got Lot, his brother, and he got... Or, keep calling him his brother, his nephew. He got Lot, his nephew, and he got all of Lot's possessions back for him. And not only that, but what happens when you go into battle? You take spoils, or at least you used to. And um, so you take spoils. 
And he comes back with greater possessions. And he meets in the king's valley in Genesis chapter 14. And who's there but Melchizedek, king of Salem, high priest to the God most high. Here's your example, Jews. Here's someone who was both a priest and a king. These offices, before they were separated by the leadership of Moses and the spiritual leadership of Aaron, were one in the same. Notice that a priest in the ancient world would have been measured by position or status by the position or status of the deity that they served. Now, Kizedek served the God most high. He was venerated wasn't he? He's introduced first in Genesis chapter 14, and as well, our author makes the point, by being priest of the God Most High. Who is Melchizedek? First, he is a priest serving on behalf of the people for the God, the Most High God. A God that had yet to perfectly reveal himself through generations except through the creation of the world and everything else who was progressively revealing himself now in the promises that were unfurling to Abraham who would become the patriarch for the nation of Israel and the founder of our faith. Here are all of these things. Where is this going? Not only is Melchizedek a priest of the God Most High, but he is called King of Righteousness. King of Righteousness. He is called not only King of Righteousness, but he is called King of Peace. These two words, our author makes a point in terms of priority that first, that he is King of Righteousness. That is, that righteousness would come before peace. But as we discuss this, one of the things that we find is that he's also King of Peace because it is through righteousness that peace is actually obtained. He's king of Salem. That word Salem literally means peace. Jerusalem means city of peace in a literal translation. He's king of, literally, king of peace. Now, Kizadek means king of righteousness by name. I want you to consider the order of these things. Our author makes a point to say that he is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem. He, he gives us some emphasis here on which comes first. As Christians, I'd like to ask, you know, put the cart before the horse or ask if the chicken comes before the egg or whatever, however we want to phrase that. Does righteousness or peace come first? By putting these in order and stressing the point, what we find is that righteousness, in fact, comes before peace. We'll discuss this more in a moment, but I want you to understand that in order to obtain peace, one must first seek righteousness. So many in the world today are seeking after peace. They just want a right relationship with God. They just, they just want this peace but when it comes time to pursue righteousness, to pursue a way of living that glorifies God, when it comes time to live out a Christian ethic, well, you've gone too far. We cannot pursue peace without righteousness. Spurgeon quoted as saying, 
Peace without righteousness is like a smooth surface of a stream before it takes its awful Niagara plunge. In the same way, Christians are justified before peace is made with God. We will discuss that more in a moment, but first let's finish fleshing out who this Melchizedek guy is. He's priest, he's king, he's righteous, and he's king of peace. Who is he? He appears in the Old Testament like a blip. If we were looking at a radar screen or something of that sort, it would appear. He comes up and then he vanishes and he's gone without a trace. But in the New Testament, as this author is writing to the Jewish audience, he says that Jesus Christ, the central focus of all of the Bible, is a part of the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. How can this blip be so significant? Having neither father or mother, most likely referring to the fact that There's no genealogy mentioned in any Old Testament account of Melchizedek. Appearing in the likeness of God or resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever simply because he appears as a blip. He comes and then he's gone. There is no end to his priesthood because, well, I didn't know where he came from and I don't know where he went. With greater significant impact do we find here? Melchizedek appears as an insignificant figure in Genesis chapter 14, but as the New Testament continues to reveal the Old Testament, what we find is that he in fact appeared under the sovereignty of God as a shadow or a type of Christ who comes with a lineage that is not of man. This is what is meant whenever we read that he is made like the Son of God. But could this Melchizedek fellow possibly be greater than Abraham? The ancestral patriarch of the entire nation of Israel, could Melchizedek, a stranger to the promises of God who appeared before Abraham in the Valley of the Kings, could he possibly be greater than Abraham? Think about what's really being asked by this question. Can Jesus Christ actually be greater than Abraham? Now, it's easy for us to say yes, isn't it? Yes, Jesus Christ is greater than Abraham because he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. This author is making an argument. He's making a point. If Melchizedek can be considered greater than Abraham, then so too Christ, who comes to inherit the order of Melchizedek through the typology or the shadow that we find in this insignificant blip in Genesis chapter 14, then so too Christ is greater as high priest above the order of Aaron. Our author begins to develop this by saying and making the point that Abraham in fact made sacrifices to, or not sacrifices, but he made offerings. He tithed to Melchizedek. If you read the account in Genesis chapter 14, what you'll find, in fact, is that the kings are in the valley. One of the kings says to Abraham to give them only the people or something of this sort. And Abraham says, take whatever you'd like. 
I would hate for you to say that it's because of you that I was made rich. And Abraham takes a tenth of the spoils of war and gives it willingly to this king of Salem. There's a couple of things that we can flesh out here. First of all, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. He acknowledged, the patriarch even acknowledged the significance of this order of the priesthood. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and says that the God Most High will bless you. And certainly he does, doesn't he? Now, would it not make sense that the one giving the blessing is of greater in importance than the one who receives the blessing? Yes. Already we see the case beginning to be built up for the structure around what the author is arguing to be given to us. Next, though, we also find that Abraham's sacrifice given to Melchizedek was a willing offering. If you look in verse 4 of our text in Hebrews chapter 7, we find that it was that Aaron or that Levi... That those descendants of Levi, this is verse 5, who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law. That is that the tithes that are received at the temple or the tabernacle, wherever we're at in history, are given by a commandment. God tells the people of Israel, you will do this, you will obey my statutes, you will give a tithe to the temple. Well, this is something compulsory. This is something they're commanded to do, and so they have to carry out with it. While in Abraham's instance, he gives willingly. Isn't a willing gift greater than a gift that is given by demand? It is. This is the second framework or a leg that begins to build the author's case. Now I say all of that, and hopefully now we've made it through the more difficult part of this passage, and we understand the relationship between Melchizedek and this priesthood descending from Aaron, and we see that Melchizedek's order is in fact greater. If I left you with that this morning... I think we would all walk out of here and say, I learned some stuff in church today. Would that do us any good? No. It's not enough just to learn some stuff in church. It's not enough just to understand this confusing order. Put ourselves in the positions of the Jews who have this as a stumbling block. It's not enough to just understand this Melchizedek fellow from Genesis chapter 14. But now what the author is actually making the case for is that I would actually believe. That I would grow in maturity. That I would pursue holiness through an understanding who Christ the Lord is. And to do that, I must take the time to seek how can I apply this text to my own life. And for that, I have three points and we will be concluded. The first is that righteousness is greater than peace. I, I hinted at this a moment ago. At least in priority. Now I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, that peace is less important than living a righteous life. Ultimately, the reason and the purpose behind the sacrifice before, between, for, the, for the atonement is peace with God. 
Not just the removal and separation from being alienated from being in an unrighteous path with God, being an enemy of God, as the Bible calls us, being deserving of hell. But the real purpose is that we might have peace, not just a lack of enmity, but friendship, that he might be able to call us son, that we would call him father. This is what it all builds up to. But I say righteousness is more important, at least in priority, because righteousness comes first. James 3.18 says that, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We might think for a second that that would mean that we would have to be peaceful in order to sow righteousness among us. But don't misunderstand what James is saying. This is the problem Christians make. We look at one verse instead of looking at the whole passage. This passage, James is teaching of wisdom that would come from God that Christians might be able to receive it. Just like the Jews that our author is writing to, you have this difficult stumbling block that you're trying to get over and understanding how Christ can be both priest and king. Don't stop there. Don't consider. Don't cut yourself short. Push onward that you might have spiritual wisdom that comes from God. The preceding verse that James says clearly says that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You really want to understand being at peace with God, you must first have wisdom from above that is first pure. And then with pure peace with God, as your life continues to unravel, as you continue to live according to the will of God, righteousness naturally is produced as you live with peace with one another. Righteousness comes before peace. This is stressed over and over in the Bible. But so often, Christians will allow themselves to water down the gospel to the point that the only thing we are building up to is a right eternal standing with God. We do not call each other to repent of sinfulness. You may disagree with me, but from what I observe, it is becoming less and less common for Christians to truly repent. The reality is we ask people to come to God that they would have peace with him instead of asking them to turn away from their wickedness by the power of God, enabling them to do so that they might live at peace with God. Righteousness precedes peace. prophet Isaiah spoke of the same thing. Isaiah 32, verse 17, And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Peace with God is our ultimate desire, but to have trust with God, can you imagine what that means? To have trust with God. For Him to trust us. The evangelist Billy Graham has said whenever he prayed, I read this, I don't know when, and I've made it a part of my prayer life. God, make me a man in whom you can trust. Can you imagine the God most high trusting a man? Can you imagine the God most high trusting you? Peace with God 
may be our ultimate desire. It's ultimately the relationship that we have with Him through living in accordance with His Word. Why does it hurt so much when somebody lies? Why does it hurt so much whenever our trust is violated? It's simple, isn't it? We opened ourselves up and we were let down. It's different with God. He opens himself up, not in a gambling sort of sense where he knows that maybe he will be violated and betrayed through betrayal by a lie or a deceit or whatever it is. He opens himself knowing that that is the case because we are sinful humans and he does it anyway. Knowing that our intentions have been redirected and course directed, that they would be focused on God and God alone. His love for us is greater than just peace his love is enduring because He desires our righteous living. Peace is surely the ultimate goal, but it is established through righteousness. Paul, when writing to the church in Rome, affirmed this very thing, saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified, and then we have peace. We must not neglect where our righteousness comes from. If you're hearing this point this morning, one of the things that I would stress to you is that you will not be made righteous because you white-knuckle it through. You will not be made righteous because you spend time reading the Bible and you decide to legalistically ascribe to every law that you find there. Certainly, that should be a desire that you have to obey all of God's statutes in a way that glorifies Him. But it won't be by your own strength. It is by faith that we are given the ability to turn away from sin. Romans 8.6 as long as you focus on white-knuckling your way through righteousness, you will fall short. Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. To try and conform the way that you live your life in a way that might please God by your own strength leads to death. To consider these things at all leads to death. Romans 8, 6 goes on, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The promise of salvation is greater than simply having some sort of eternal fire insurance that we might be able to avoid hell that we deserve. The promise of salvation is greater because it also gives us the internal ability through the Spirit to overcome wickedness. My second point. Not only is righteousness greater than peace and priority, but a willing love is greater than a mandated honor. This is one of the foundational building blocks that makes Melchizedek superior to the descendants of Aaron. In Matthew 9, verse 13, Jesus quotes from Hosea, telling them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So often our understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system is so superficial that we don't understand what God is teaching through His revealed Word. 
God does not desire that these sacrifices would be continually made. He desires, in truth, mercy. In giving Israel the sacrificial system, they came up with their own sins. They twisted it into a formulaic sense of obedience. And perhaps even you're considering now an application, how do you put righteousness above peace? How you might do the same thing. Israel's formulaic obedience was that sin would demand atonement to be made at one with God. Sin separates you from God. I need atonement to be made at one with God to now be in unity with Him. Then they would say that atoning for sin means that we're pleasing God. As long as I'm faithful in making that atonement, that I would be pleasing God. And here's where it gets twisted. Instead of endeavoring to not sin, Israel simply made sure that they made enough sacrifices to cover their sin. Let me ask you a question. Did they really love God? What do you think? If God told me to live according to His law and He gave me a law that leaves room that whenever there is sin, when we miss the mark, that we might be able to make atonement with Him, if I placed all of my emphasis on making sure that I made that atonement, do I really love Him? I don't think so. Paul makes this point in discussing the perfect sacrifice of Christ, that Christ is, His atonement is sufficient and no longer do we need to continually make sacrifices over and over and over again with imperfect sacrifices of man. But now because there's this perfect sacrifice, it not only covers the sin of the whole world, for those that would come to believe Christ, but it also covers all of the sin that we will perform in the future. The teaching of the church is that whenever a person is saved, not only have they been justified, that all of the sins of their life have been forgiven, but all of the sins that will be performed in the future of their life are also forgiven that they are preserved and held close to God, that their salvation is secure in His willingness to offer mercy. If this is the case, why all this talk about righteousness? Why all this need to repent? Wouldn't it be better if grace is so great to simply let grace abound all the more as I continue living my life the way that I want to? By no means, Paul says. If you really understood the love that affords the offering of grace to God's creation fallen by the depravity of man, then you'll understand how ridiculous that sounds. Psalm 97 verse 10 instructs those who love the Lord, hate evil. 1 John 3 9 gives us a staggering warning to anyone who would rely on a false profession of faith. John writes, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Reality is, being brought near 
through the, as, through the adoption as sons to Christ results in a desire to live in a way that pleases God. No longer are our sacrifices or our holiness or our righteousness before God something that we do because it has been conscripted upon us, but it is something that we do with a willing love that is like a willing love offered to a child or to a parent. It is a willing love. Because the mandated honor that we saw given to God by Israel fell short of the willing love that God desired. I have one last point. So far we've said that righteousness comes before peace. And we've said that willing love is greater than a mandated honor. Finally, let me say that comprehension is greater than confusion. Comprehension is greater than confusion. One of the things that stands out to me as I read Hebrews chapters 5 through 7 is the stumbling block that came before the Jewish people in accepting Christ as both Lord and priest. (coughs) Now surely there are people in this world today who have such stumbling blocks before them. We live in an age, after all, that I think embraces intellectualism. That is, thinking through things with Enlightenment-era rationale and everything that comes with it. Looking back through the lens 2,000 years ago, I see that such reasoning wasn't always the primary form of building an argument. Does that surprise you? Humans haven't always been rational. At least not what we would call rational. Looking back through this, I see that perhaps intellectualism is actually corrupting. In fact, I think that it is. But what does that mean for the Christian who simply wants to keep their faith simple? What does that mean for the church that simply wants to keep doing things the way we've always done it because it feels most comfortable? What does that mean for the saint who wants to know God's love and His peace and everything without anything changing in their life? What does it mean for us as we consider what it means to understand what God is giving us in 66 books? What does it mean when we come up to a passage like Hebrews chapter 6 that challenges us and causes us to think harder than we normally think? Too many people are simply saying it's just too tough. I'll leave that to the theologians and I'll leave those to those that are smart enough to handle it. Need I say it again that this entire institution that we have built in America around knowing God through an academic sense is a corrupted form that only exists because the church will not step up to understand the deep things of God. In fact, I believe such that theology can only be performed in the context of the local church. Does that mean that well, all Christians have to understand these stupid words that we have come up with, especially in the past 1,500 years? No. It means that we must understand the plain things of God in a sense that is relatable to us. We must pursue comprehension rather than simply being confused. 
If we want our theology to be put in a language that makes sense to us, rather than a language that is confusing to us, then we must pursue to develop our theology for ourselves through the accordance of God's Word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the direction of the church who is instituted and ordained to do such things. Does it make sense what I'm saying? I don't know if you've ever thought about these deep, difficult truths that exist in this understanding God and who He is. For example, the Trinity. Whoa. Who likes talking about the Trinity? It is an avoided topic. But isn't it foundational to our faith? Don't we consider it a dogma that is an essential element that defines you as a Christian? If you don't believe in the Trinity, I doubt your salvation. Isn't that what we teach? It's what I teach. Well, the problem with understanding the Trinity is, well, that's a church doctrine that was developed so long ago that the language doesn't even make sense to me. What does it mean to say that God is one substance? What is the difference between substance and... Um, and uh, I can't remember the other word. It just doesn't even make sense to me because I'm so far removed from those conversations. It's confusing. Loved ones, this is my encouragement to you this morning. I know that these things are confusing. I realize that this is ancient. Most of us haven't spent time reading things that are older than 2,000 years old except the Bible. How do we understand these things? We must pursue them in community together, seeking comprehension rather than confusion. The encouragement given at the beginning of God's revelation through even the Old Testament, Proverbs 4.20, teaching his son, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Rather than simply accepting the mysteries of God, as we would like to call them, should we not be pursuing to understand these things? Loved ones, I believe that if we really sought to understand what the Bible was teaching us, we would have a higher view of God, a more detestable view of sin. Repentance would flow naturally. I believe that in pursuing divine truth, that spiritual growth will occur in the church. This was the case in the early church. As the Jews, the audience our author in Hebrews is writing to, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, as they came together, what did they do? These people that we call the Bereans, what are they known for? These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Real, mature Christians examine the Scriptures daily. Not just read it, but they examine it. They interrogate it. They ask questions. They pray to God. They ask for help. They understand it. This is worship. This is the command given to the church. Paul, when writing to his protege, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul instructs him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
if the church is going to grow, then we have to admit that we have room to grow. Too often is the case that we have been raised in a tradition that honors God, that glorifies God. We've made ourselves believe that we're mature. Rather than approaching God with humility, we approach Him with thankfulness that He's made us mature. We leave no room to grow, no room to be challenged. Loved ones, as we look at this priestly order of Melchizedek, as we look at the relationship between Melchizedek and Aaron, how he is greater, how therefore Christ is greater, I want you to see that this is immediately applicable to the way that we live our lives. Righteousness precedes peace. A willing love is greater than a compulsory love. And comprehension is greater than just confusion. We must seek comprehension. We must. For there to be true revival in the hearts of believers, for revival to take shape and form us in an authentic way, to let God lead us, we must be understanding of what God has taught us. We must understand it in simple terms. We must understand in our comprehension the awful condition of sin, recognizing that it is in and amongst us. It is in me both personally and among us as a corporate body of believers called out for the sakes, for the worship of God. We must call upon ourselves to confess. We must call ourselves to repent. We must call each other when we have prepared ourselves to do the same. Hear me, church. Get up and repent. I do not tell you to do this because I see a particularly sinful congregation, but because we live in an extraordinarily wicked world. We must be a people of repentance. We must repent of being closed-minded to the Bible and in so doing being lazy in our study. We must repent of being inconsistent in our service to the church and to the mission of God. We must repent of finding more joy in appeasing the world than proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We must repent of falling, failing to practice discernment on the things that we see on the internet and amongst us. We must repent of half-heartedness loving God and relying on a continual offering of sacrifices when in truth he desires mercy. We must repent. Second, we must love God with everything that we are. Finally, we must pursue righteousness as a means of peace rather than pursuing peace in spite of our righteousness. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the direction that you have given us. Lord, I thank you for the ability that we have to gather. Lord, we praise you for all that you are. We come to you humble. God, we come to you with humble hearts, acknowledging that we are not all that you would have us be because we live in a world fallen. We know that we are fallen, but God, we thank you for your justification. Lord, we pursue you in our sanctification. God, we love you and we hold you most dear. God is our love earnest. 
If it's not, Lord, I pray that you would show us our sinfulness, that you would guide us in repentance. God, I pray that you would revive not just us, but that you would revive your people, that we would stand boldly on all of the truths of your word, that we wouldn't water it down to live in a world that is continually more antagonistic towards you, but that we would have confidence in you. Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness towards us. We repent of our unfaithfulness and ask that you would guide us as we conclude these services in your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand as